The Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined by author and analyst Jeff Nyquist. Uh, I've been reading his his work and blog for many years. He holds some very unique and fascinating views on how the world works. How are you enjoying enjoying the final days of peace, Jeff? I'm enjoying them, yes, because they may they may not be with us for long with with what's happening in Eastern Europe. All right. Yeah, yeah. We'll be talking about that. It's just crazy everything that's uh, escalating. But uh, I thought we'd first start with a certain topic. Uh, about 20 years ago, I think I picked up uh, copies of the works of one Anatoly uh, Golitsyn. He was a Soviet defector who had been trying to explain that the communist East was going to play uh, a strategic long game that they would feign collapse uh, in order to defeat the West. Another defector, Yuri Bezmenov, interviewed by G. Edward Griffin, who I've had the pleasure to meet uh, myself. Uh, Bezmenov echoed some of Galitsyn's views. Uh, this is sort of the general context behind uh, a lot of your analysis. And I think many listeners are not uh, familiar with this. One listener actually wrote in asking you to explain, you know, how is, how is today's KGB, the, the FSB, how does it operate? Because for your theory to be real, there would have to be kind of like a continuity. Um, I've, I, I can't say that I'm fully on board with this version um, uh, of the theory, but I've always kept it in the back of my mind and I have not discarded it. I haven't found anything to, you know, to make me discard it. So it's still there. I'm, I'm floating between different perspectives and mm -hmm. uh, there are times when it certainly does make sense and especially what's happened recently with Kazakhstan and what's going on now. So before getting into some of the other subjects, such as the pandemic uh, or Ukraine, briefly, could you kind of explain to us this background context of the communist deception? Well, Anatoly Galitsyn was had been in Vienna. Uh, he was a Soviet KGB counterintelligence um, in uh, a foreign counterintelligence uh, station in Vienna. He came back in the late fifties, and uh, the, when the KGB was reorganizing after Alexander Shalepin became the head of the KGB in 1958, they were reorganizing the KGB to carry out a long-range strategy that they had developed. Um, in um, 1957, I think it started meeting before then, but there was something, uh, a committee headed by Leonid Brezhnev. Uh, Khrushchev was then the, the, uh, the general secretary of the Communist Party Soviet Union, but Brezhnev was in charge of this committee that was going to reorganize Soviet strategy, rethink it. And they needed to rethink Soviet strategy because two things had happened. The ballistic missile you know, Sputnik was launched in 1957, which meant that you and, and the hydrogen bomb, the hydrogen bomb was much stronger than the atomic bomb. And so you could put a hydrogen bomb on a Sputnik on a basically a rocket, and it could go all the way around and strike Chicago or Washington in about 30 minutes. And so this was a revolution in warfare. And they needed to rethink everything they had conceived in their strategy. Um, and so this is what the Brezhnev committee did. There were two people on that committee. One was a KGB general named Nikolai Miranov, and the other was uh, Marshal Sokolovsky, the great World War II Soviet strategist, who was the brains behind the very successful 1944 summer offensive against Germany on the Eastern Front. Um, uh, the destruction that resulted in the destruction of the German Army Group Center at the same time the Battle of Normandy was going on. So these strategists set up this strategy, and Galitza knew about Miranov. Miranov was a disciple of Sun Tzu, and believed that it 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 fitted perfectly with uh, uh, with with uh, these concepts of deception that had originally been adopted by Felix Dzerzhinsky the founder of the Soviet secret police. And it was actually thought of Menzinsky, his, the, the deputy underneath uh, Felix Dzerzhinsky spoke fluent Mandarin and was a uh, very fascinated by China, knew all about China's strategies and had used these strategies in something called Operation Trust in the 1920s. There was a sort of minor faking of the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 1920s. That's what Operation Trust was. So in order to understand what Galitsyn is saying, is you got to go back in history and say the Soviets already did a fake collapse in the 1920s. They had captured some white generals. There was a civil war between white generals and red generals in, in uh, Russia. The Russians, 
civil war. Uh, and the Reds won, but they captured these white generals who ran this monarchist alliance of central Russia. And they took it over, the, 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 the secret police, the Soviet secret police, later called the KGB, took it over in the 1920s and created a fake anti-Soviet organization that they then made all the Western intelligence services, they all believed it, they all believed because they sent agents out saying, look, we've infiltrated the, the secret police, we've infiltrated the Red Army, we've infiltrated the Soviet government, we basically control everything. And people believed it, you know, even Lenin, and then Lenin did his NEP, Lenin retreated into state capitalism, you know, in the, in what was called the NEP was the new economic policy where the Soviet Union liberalized the farmers owned their own farms. I mean, capitalism was flourishing in the Soviet Union in the 1920s and under Stalin until Stalin brought it to a halt and said, it was all just a giant game. We played them. Ha ha. Um, and the same thing with the trust. They called it, uh, this Operation Trust because the leaders of this supposed monarchist conspiracy met in a bank in Moscow, a trust, a bank. Now, what, what Miranov and his strategy said, we need to do the trust, Operation Trust, on a massive scale to defeat the West. Because you had Sokolovsky said, we need to fight a nuclear war. Sokolovsky said, we need to build rockets. We need to build a giant. Uh, missile forces. We need to have an all-arms nuclear world war, and we just have to build civil defense and accept the damage. And Sokolovsky's strategists thought of things like depopulating Europe, and if there's radioactive rubble over the Soviet Union, you move the Soviet population to Europe, and they live there. And you move the Russian population there because Europe's going to be depopulated. You do things like that. Um, why not? You, you, once you win a nuclear war, you can move the populations around any way you want. You can exterminate whole nations, whole cultures, and take over their infrastructure because you can use biological weapons to do that, you see. So, so this is kind of the thinking then. So Galitzin comes along. He's in the, the KGB is reorganizing for the deception. And in order to carry it out, they created an internal KGB and an external one. That is, a, a, the most of the KGB, they're not going to tell them the strategy because they're in contact with the West. Any KGB officer that goes into a Western country can't know anything about this because he could tell it and it would spoil the whole thing. So the inner KGB are KGB people who are very trusted just a handful of people who know the strategy and are giving the orders to the other ones. Inner KGB, outer KGB, to protect the security of this larger operation that would be going on for 40 years. They projected it a 40-year-long-range strategy. Then they had code words for it in, the 19, in 1960 when, the, when all the communist parties met. I think it was for the first time since World War II that they all got together. They basically all signed in on it. And one of the first things that happened then was the so-called Sino-Soviet split. But what Galitsyn said was, he said, now, he was at a lecture of KGB uh, General Shalepin, the head of the KGB, who talked about the split between Tito and Stalin. Stalin tried to send assassins to kill Tito, and Tito sent a man that got next to Stalin and handed him a note like, boom, you're dead or something, right? So he said, look, let's stop this trying to assassinate each other. And they kind of, that. but this split, when this split happened, the West came in and helped. Tito was a communist. He was a Marxist-Leninist. The West came in and helped Tito, and the Soviets were astonished. You mean if a communist regime has a spat with Moscow, the West will help them? So Shalupin said, uh, we need a fake split with a communist country that the West will go in and build up that communist country. And one of the, the KGB officers hearing this lecture said, Comrade General Shalupin, what country will we use to have this fake split with the Soviet Union? And he said, China. That was 1959. That was the year before the Sino-Soviet split began. So Galitsyn knew these bits and pieces uh, and he figured out what they were going to do. He thought it out. He defected. Now, they, they some, for some reason, they didn't quite trust him. So they put him in the outer KGB. They probably detected psychologically. He wasn't exactly uh, with the program. And they, they made him, I think he was deputy resident in Finland and Helsinki from where he defected in December 61. So here Galitzin comes. He defects to the West. He has these hints and clues about this long-range strategy later mocked as the monster plot, right? Which, which, by the way, to carry it out, 
the Soviets had to do what they had successfully done during World War II, which is infiltrate the major opposing intelligence services and feed them false information reliably. It's called a feedback loop, right? Where you have uh, moles in the CIA, in the FBI, in MI6, in the various intelligence services, in the, in the French DGSE. You, you've got all these moles and spies in these agencies, and they are, they are feeding uh, a, a picture to us uh, of, of, a, of a future liberalization. And they did, they did different experiments. They had detente under Brezhnev. They had de-Stalinization under uh, Khrushchev, of course. And they, they, they did different experiments along the way. You had uh, Galitzin thought that the Czech, you know, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, in 1968, Czechoslovakia uh, had uh, developed communism with the human face, Right. Uh, and that they were going to have a liberal form of communism. And of course, as you know, the Warsaw Pact moved in and smashed that. Um, and uh, Glitzen said that was an experiment to see if they could do it and they could get the West to believe in it. Um, so, But they weren't ready. They had to create dissident organizations like the Trust in a lot of the Eastern European countries and fake. They had to create liberals or anti-Soviet people like Wojciech, uh, um, uh, no, I mean, um, um, the Polish solidarity leader, like Valenza, right? They had to create guys like that, like Vaclav Havel, who they put in jail. And I talked to Havel's friends and they said, you know, Havel had caviar in his cell. You know, he had, he had really nice furniture. He wasn't, he was living in a luxury apartment, basically in prison. He was a special prisoner is what they told me. And, um, and so um, you have this, uh, this long term, they had to develop the networks, they had to develop the deception, they had to beat the CIA, they had to do all these things first. And so Galitzin, uh, when he defected, uh, there was a, the brain of the CIA was a guy named James Angleton, who headed the CIA counterintelligence staff, which was the brain of the CIA. He had convinced uh, Eisenhower and uh, 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 General Doolittle, who ran a commission because they the CIA had been penetrated severely, and they found out in 1953 that Eisenhower had tricked his friend General Smith, Walter Bettle Smith, to resign because Smith was suspected by the FBI of being a Soviet agent, the head of the CIA. So they had this commission, and General Doolittle told Eisenhower, this Angleton guy impresses me. Because he says what the CIA lacks is a brain that collects all the information to decide, to understand the mind of the enemy. So Glitzen became very important for Angleton recognized his value. And he said, look, this guy has got ideas that help us understand what we already know. And so he got him, uh, Bobby Kennedy, after the Bay of Pigs, through a committee, Attorney General Bobby Kennedy was really running the CIA. And this is ex this is explained in in this book uh, by one of these guys that interviewed Angleton. Um, but uh, what happened is Angleton met with Bobby Kennedy, and Bobby Kennedy was listening; he was believing it. Which you would presume then Jack Kennedy was hearing this from Bobby. Now the tragedy happened at Dallas in 1963. Kennedy was shot. Also, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated five years later less than five years later, 1968, June of 68. So both of these guys that had believed in Galitzin were dead. Presidential timber, right? Both of them were dead. And somehow, if you talk to most Americans, they think the CIA did it. But yet Oswald was trained with a rifle in, in Minsk in Russia. And Oswald had connections to the DGI, to the Cuban intelligence. And the Cuban intelligence was just the Spanish-speaking branch of the KGB. So you have this, this whole thing. So Galitzin went on. They had sent a false defector named Yuri Nosenko. And about, by the way, the CIA guy, um, uh, whose name was, um, uh, I'll think of his name in a minute, the CIA uh, official who brought in Nosenko from Switzerland, um, actually came to believe that Nosenko was a false defector. Uh, and that was Pete Bagley. Pete Bagley wrote a book about it. Um, 
he wrote a couple books, very interesting books. And I, I spoke to him. I got the chance to interview him, and and I corresponded with him for a period of years. And and Pete Bagley's book about why Noseko was a fake defector is definitive, because he's the guy that initially believed in him and brought him in. Now Senko claimed to have seen Oswald's file. He discredited the idea that Oswald had anything to do with killing Kennedy, and that was just great by Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson did not was scared to death of World War III. If the if people believed that the that the communist bloc had anything to do with killing Kennedy, it would it would require him to invade Cuba, and that might cause a nuclear war. So they were just relieved to get rid of that problem. Um, and so what happened is Nosenko came to be believed ultimately through a series of events, and and Golitsyn came to be disbelieved, and Angleton came under attack politically. Because then you had Nixon come in with Kissinger, and Kissinger wanted to taunt, and he wanted an opening with China. And here Golitsyn had said, look, they're going to fake a split with China. And Kissinger wanted to, to Nixon to go to China. So that further put Angleton. And so by the time you get to 1974, uh, through various things that happened, Angleton is basically kicked out of the CIA. Uh, Golitsyn is put to pasture. The counterintelligence staff of the CIA is gradually just disintegrated, just gotten rid of. So the CIA has no more brain anymore, no more collection, no more knowing the mind of the enemy. And then begins the period of we're just filled with moles. You got Aldrich Ames, you got uh, Robert Hansen in the in the FBI, who, by the way, we're in charge of counterintelligence watching the Soviet bloc. So our top counterintelligence experts watching the Soviet bloc for years. I mean, Hansen, I think they think was recruited in 78, initially by the GRU, then was passed to the KGB. Uh, <clears throat> Aldrich James, I think, was recruited in 84, if I remember. 84 or 85. And, you know, this is the critical period then we're getting into. And Galitzin finally, he wrote his book, New Lies for All, Old in 1984, in which he laid out the strategy and, and what he called the new methodology for understanding Soviet strategy. That the Soviets were following Miranov's ideas and, the, uh, and the, the, they were modeling Operation Trust, only they were doing it on a much bigger scale. And they had developed they had they had basically developed through the science of their institutes and their studies a, a very the, their disinformation department became the key. They had to feed us false ideas about themselves, and we had to accept it. Our think tanks, and of course, as you know, groupthink is a thing that happens. And once prestigious people like Henry Kissinger or our academic experts on the Soviet Union came to believe something was true, who is anybody to disagree with the experts? I, I, yeah, and I would just add this kind of coincides with what, what you mentioned with the 1960s and what Yuri Bezmenov said, the process of demoralization. And we saw with the, the march to the institutions, right? How the, which a lot of people say the CIA was, had a heavy involvement in the sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you know, we, um, with, the, with the seeding of the drugs, mm -hmm. uh, you know, LSD, uh, uh, the book Laurel, uh, Laurel, what is it, Can um, Laurel Canyon, how many of the, uh, 60s and 70s rock musicians came from you know military backgrounds and that was kind of the seed of of the the left-wing culture that we have today i mean even down here in mexico when i was teaching at university 99 percent of my students were uh left-wing and so that's like that that has been the consequence of what started back in the 60s and, and, and 70s what yeah. we have today yeah, it's very important for the Russians to help to foster a left-wing uh, thinking in all academic institutions. And communists, the original, you know, communism is a, a movement. It's, it, you know, the Communist Manifesto goes back to 1848, uh, there, and there was a big revolution in 1848 throughout Europe. There were revolutions in various countries. Um, and uh, the... The evolution of that ideology with the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, it gained incredible sophistication because the, the, the leaders of the Soviet Revolution got control of the, the Russian secret police, the Okhrana or Okranka is, a, is the nickname. The Okhrana was uh, extremely sophisticated. It, you had, from the time of Ivan the Terrible forward, you have hundreds of years of developing very sophisticated techniques. Russia is a country that uh, under, under Moscow, 
was aligned with the Mongols. Mongol princes were educated in China to the ideas of Sun Tzu and other Chinese strategists. So it had this, this, they were steeped, they had imbibed this kind of Oriental, Far Eastern Chinese sophisticated thinking. I mean, the first false defector, you know, people, I've heard people from CIA and intelligence academics tell me there are no false defectors. You can't do that. It will never work. Well, the first recorded instance of a false defector in history is 1900 BC in China. China developed a culture around it. They had stories about false defectors. They were the heroes, the, the people that came from one kingdom and went to the other and became advisors of kings and then undermined those kings and changed the whole situation where the heroes in China, it wasn't, they didn't have like Alexander the Great was the hero or whatever. It was their spies were their heroes and a lot of Chinese um, strategic historiography. So, so, so Russia had absorbed that part of that. And especially with the, the, the acquisition of the Okhrana, which became the, be, became a, the communist uh, Cheka, it became the GPU, OGPU, NKVD, MGB, KGB, and now it's MGB again, by the way, though they don't say it, they've created the MGB. So the SVR and the uh, uh, FSB are now under the Ministry of State Security. You know, uh, which why it was called the KGB was because when when uh, Laurentia Beria was assassinated or, or murdered, rather, when he was murdered, they demoted the Ministry of State Security to a committee. Okay, it got demoted because the the, the government said that these KGB people could be dangerous to the Communist Party. Um, so how, how would then? If, I mean, in the interest of time, because I wanted to also talk mm -hmm. about. The pandemic and what's going on with the ukraine right if like so that's kind of you you kind of laid out the 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 foundation yeah. right and then if we go past 1990 and we have the last 30 years right, right. Where okay i can R i can russia is, yeah. is like in the 90s taken down and then it comes back again yeah i can say this very simply what galitzin said in his book in 1984 he made 140 falsifiable predictions mark Riebling went through them in his book um uh just Mark Riebling's book is right here somewhere. Mark Riebling went through his book um, on this. And, and of those 140, by 1994, uh, almost 94% of those predictions Galitzin made about the fall of the Soviet Union had come true. And very detailed predictions in many respects. And Galitzin warned this, this liberalization will also include in Czechoslovakia people who've been involved in the Czech Spring, and it did. Right, you will have these false liberal leaders emerging. You will have actual democracy in the former Warsaw Pact countries. The Soviet Union will adapt, uh, uh, you know, what appears to be Western institutions. But he said it will be false. There's with those, they will be deceptive. It 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 will not be. There won't be real change. The KGB and the Communist Party underground will control through their agents in the economy and government and elsewhere. They will still control the whole situation. And this, by the way, if you study what actually has happened in the book, if you read Karen DeWish's book, who she claims it was a mafia took over the former Soviet Union, but you know, you could use every single piece of evidence in her book to show that Galitzin was right, because mm -hmm. all of it fits Galitzin's methodology even better than the mafia because how do you explain in a country that you don't really have a constitution and, and criminals don't really have any rights how could the criminals take over because the biggest criminal organization in the country is the kgb so how could the criminals get over that um and and, and so there it it's um it's complicated because criminality and corruption exist in these communist countries and the the interactions between the mafia the Communist Party leaders and the KGB are, they're more complicated than Galitzin's theory, obviously. So, so then you get through that period and you know that things went wrong with their plan because their plan imagined, for example, the, 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 the unification of Germany to happen under communist terms that didn't happen because Cole uh, was not a communist and the, the left kind of failed at that instance. But uh, so then it, it, it was a longer process and the Soviet Union had a big economic stumble. It had to break apart 
It went through that. There were a lot of problems in different Soviet republics. I think that the the communists lost control of of areas. Uh, there was genuine confusion, as Pete Bagley's uh, interaction showed in his in his works. Um, so it it it. But yet, the core of the Soviet Union remained. We can we can see that now very clearly. And Galitsyn was right. And what Galitsyn said is that Sino-Soviet split was fake. And they will come together. And this is a prediction that he didn't get credit for getting right, but it's obviously right now. They will change the military balance. China and Russia will emerge stronger than the West. And they'll start, he called it one clenched fist, and they are going to come after you. And you're not going to be ready if you believe this Sino-Soviet split. And you believe the Soviet Union is gone. And then you're going to be defeated. That that in a nutshell. And that's... Basically, it's pl- it kind of played out. This is what he predicted. Uh, this is why I'm saying I can't discard this because I forget his name, but the other Soviet defector, um, Jan called, Shana. No, he calls the EU the new European uh, Soviet Bukowski or oh yeah, Vladimir Bukowski. Right. I've interviewed so, him. I, I've again, talked to him. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, he's passed away, but yes, uh, in private, uh, he basically acknowledged it's communism, and we never understood communism how flexible it was. He talked about a KGB power. He would publicly put it in the, because it was the only way people could understand it. He was trying to communicate to people the danger coming out of Moscow still. Um, but I, the first, one of the first questions I asked him, I go, the Western conservatives, anti-communists, they never understood communism. Did they? He said, no. I said, why not? Because it's complicated and they wanted it to be simple. Yeah, and 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 as well, what you mentioned, what's going on, the, the, the what happened in Kazakhstan, uh, and this just made me think. I interviewed a, an a Italian academic, and he said that as a result of what happened in Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan would move closer to Russia, and it would um, push forward in the integration with the Eurasian Union, which he says Putin views the Eurasian Union as a geopolitical, um, you know, power tool and then now we see what's happening in, in ukraine and i also uh, i mean to, to go a little bit forward towards the pandemic one of the guests i've had on uh recurringly was greg copley who talks about in his book the new total war and i think his persp- and he's very intelligent his perspective is that you know a, a lot of people are saying that this was a biological war unleashed uh by the east um against the west so you know this this bio war pandemic is is part of this new total war which would again fit in uh this version with what you're yes. saying so mm-hmm. you know what's going on right now if you could enlighten us with the pandemic i think it is a biological attack on the west a very sophisticated one because all their attacks are sophisticated you know they gave it to china first you have to do that you have to make an alibi every time with nuclear weapons uh, poised on both sides any attack you do on the other side, you have to have an alibi so they, they don't feel they have to retaliate on you. You give them a way out, just like Johnson had a way out with Nosenko saying, oh, no, the Soviets didn't kill Kennedy. And no, he wanted to believe that, so Nosenko became the guy. They, they've learned what it is that we want to believe, and they play that up. And we don't want to believe that COVID-19 is a biological attack. We don't want to because what would that obligate us to do? How would we have to act? How would we have to change the way we live? So we don't accept it. But it is, I mean, I just, from years of looking at this and studying it, it is a biological attack. It's part of a larger sequence of attacks and maneuvers that are underway. And if you look, the usual suspects in the West have been using this thing to attack the Western economy, to sabotage our economy with the lockdowns. You look at the damage to our currency. You look at the damage to to small businesses. I mean, Stalin said that the small businessman was your real enemy of communism because we can take over corporations. We can manipulate a big corporation, but it's all those it's it's all those millions of small businessmen that are going to say, look, I I you know, I don't want to lose my business. I don't want to lose my freedom. I don't want to lose my dignity. And so Stalin said, those are the petty bourgeoisie. That's who we have to wipe out. And of course, that this pandemic has done that. So yes, I it's obvious to me. It's obviously an attack from the East. Yes. And a lot of the different guests that I talked to also, even from different perspectives as yours, they also mentioned this agreeable fact that it's they've been trying to get the West to accept the authoritarian measures that are in China. So again, that plays into your um, theory that, well, the Galitzin's theory that 
you know, now the West is becoming more authoritarian. Right. Well, Galitzin, I didn't explain this. Galitzin has this idea that how they do it at the end is called convergence. Through their strategy, they and their infiltration, because the collapse of the Soviet Union then allows the West to become more leftist. Because as long as there was a threat from a leftist authoritarian state, the Soviet Union, the West had to be had always be suspicious of its own left as being collaborators with the, their enemy. But once the Soviet Union goes away, you don't have to worry about it. You can elect people who are very far to the left, especially if they pretend to be more in the center, like Obama, you know, or like Biden, or like the Clintons. They really are much further to the left than they pretend. And you can tell by following them closely, you can tell this. Um, and so the the West becomes more left and the more left authoritarian. If you put them through emergencies like um, a biological attack or even a war, if this Ukraine thing evolves into a war in Eastern Europe, then what? Wars are closer to martial law in all the countries waging war. And look at who's in charge of the West. Leftists who may then establish leftist authoritarian government, and then you have a peace treaty, and then you have convergence where the left, where the East and the West converge. And then everything kind of melds into a universal Marxist system, only they won't call it a Marxist system because that'll alarm too many people. And then pretty soon you have people, you know, you start sending people to camps and you take away freedom of speech, and then you have global communism, which is the ultimate goal. Of Moscow and Beijing, and others. Yeah, I forgot about the convergence. Now that you, you you rang a bell, like I read the book like twenty years ago, and yeah. others others talk about this as well, like Anthony Sutton, how there would be this kind of synthesis. synthesis. Well, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Andre Sakharov wrote the book in nineteen sixty eight, I believe. Right, this is Andre Sakharov's book. Progress, Coexistence, and Intellectual Freedom. He was the guy who invented the Soviet hydrogen bomb, or at least he was given credit for it. And, um, and here, here's the blurb from Henry Kissinger in the back saying how wonderful this document is. But this is about convergence. And it was the, the, the inventor of the Soviet hydrogen bomb who came up with this, who, who came up with this, actually he didn't come up with it because they'd come up with it in, in their strategy sessions in the 1950s, but he's the one that gave it publicity and credibility in the West. And also just to mention, you know, Gorbachev, who I've shaken, shaken hands with, um, as soon as the collapse of the USSR came about, he formed his uh, NGO, I think it's called Green Cross International. And he starts talking about like this idea of, of convergence, of having yes. a global government and basically, well, everyone would be involved in this global yeah. uh, government. And so, um, the, I mean, it's just it's just fascinating. This is like the road to this global totalitarian right. government. Well, and, and also part of the stages in this, if you look, go back to Gorbachev, you remember in his books, he talked about the one common European home. And Edward Shevardnadze, his foreign minister, talked about the one common Euro- European home. Then after the fall of the Soviet Union... Boris Yeltsin talked about the one common European home. You know, initially Gorbachev said from Brest to Vladivostok, but Yeltsin even said, well, why not go all the way to Vancouver? He didn't include the United States, just Canada, right? So it'd be the it'd be Europe and Canada in the one common European home. Well, what is the one common European home? It is the part of the world that the Soviet Union gets with whatever other parts they get, and the Chinese get their part of the spoils, which a, a GRU defector, uh, Colonel Stanislav Lunev, told me that in the division of the world, the China is going to get the lower 48 states. And if you read Chiao Chen's speech uh, of 20 years ago, he was the defense minister of China. He said that they made a deal, they made a trade of uh, land in the north to get what they wanted, the lower 48 states because they need to make a second China here and they need to exterminate the American population because China's overpopulated it and they need to move their population somewhere and the United States is where they need to move it. So, and, and, and uh, Lunev said they had made an agreement in uh, I think around 1991 before his defection. And at the last meeting that he attended of the Russian generals, they said, this is the war plan. This is how we're going to divide North America. Russia is going to get Alaska and parts of Canada 
uh, China is going to get the lower 48 states with other countries invited in for looting rights. So this military emergency we're going into, the kind of leadership we have now is really indicative. Uh, it also <laughs> lines up with this idea. They are, they know they have to do some violence. Uh, they have to do some terrible things. The idea that the Holodomor or, or like uh, the Pol Pot's um, killing fields is over with the communists is nonsense. Their regimes by nature commit mass murder and atrocities. And, and Engels had written, you know, more than, more than uh, 130 years ago, uh, Engels wrote that the revolution signifies the annihilation, the extermination of whole races and classes of people. Yeah, I, I don't doubt as a teacher of history, and I've mentioned this before in my podcast, that I really see a dark uh, future and people lambast me about it. But I just, you know, reality is, is, is reality. And mm-hmm. I, I'm just wondering, uh, you know, how we would get from where we are today to what you're talking about. I, I've, I've seen a, um, analysis and, and other such of, you know, invasion of the U.S. Bloomberg just uh, published Hell Brands, I think, in December, discussion of how in a, in the next war, uh, the homeland won't be safe, uh, America, that there will be right. uh, attack on America. And this kind of like r- right now we're, we're at this phase of Ukraine. And then I'm wondering, like, you know, what happens after that? How do we get from where we are today to an actual all, all out uh, assault? And so maybe we can just you, get your thoughts yeah. on Ukraine, because now we hear Lukashenko talking about uh, war. There's the talk of false flags by both sides. We have Biden, who we know was tight with uh, with Ukraine, Hunter Biden and Joe. And he just it's remarkable what he said, like, oh, you know, if it's a minor incursion by Russia into Ukraine, I mean, that's pretty crazy. So, uh, you know, what's going on with U- Ukraine right now? And then would that escalate to a full on? War. Yeah, the Russian mobilization of forces on the frontiers of Ukraine continue. Uh, the Russians have announced that they are going to be uh, putting all four of their fleets to sea at once, 140 ships of the Russian Navy. Um, they have been moving a lot, uh, quite a few rail uh, locomotives with trains carrying military equipment into Belarus the last several days. They're deploying mechanized divisions north of Kiev. The interesting thing is there's a giant uh, marsh called the Pripet Marsh, which is north between Belarus and uh, Kiev. And that marsh uh, freezes over. There's a passages for armor then in the winter uh, when the freezes is solid enough. So they can actually move uh, mechanized infantry through that passage and attack Kiev from the west side of the Dnieper River, a lot of the strategists talk about the river. Also, there's the other large deployment, really large deployment in Crimea. I mean, there's more. It, I mean, I look at the deployment maps of where the Russian units are, and it looks like there's more Russian troops in Crimea, uh, or or uh, slightly more than on the whole eastern uh, frontier of Crimea. And if this deployment into Belarus from the north is large enough, it's like the jaws, the crushing jaws. You know, you've got, they can land at Odessa from Crimea or cut across the probably just land. They've brought in a lot of landing craft. And then they, they're on the other side of the river and they've, they've cut Ukraine off from Europe. They have Moldova already. They've moved troops into, not Moldova, but the uh, Transnistria. It's this little breakaway nothing place that's really a military enclave for the Russians to deploy troops in uh, Ukraine's rear. And this enclave, I think, was set up for a future uh, inc- you know, retaking of Ukraine. And you talked about Kazakhstan and the Union Treaty and Belarus and Lukashenko going along with the Union Treaty. I mean, basically, uh, people don't may not know this, but uh, Belarus is in military union with Russia. The Russian general staff commands the Belarusian army and the Russian army. They are one army. Uh, and so it, it, and it's very indicative of an attack on Ukraine that this, this thing happened in Kazakhstan because it's securing their rear, right? They're securing their rear in advance of an advance West. They're securing the East before they go West. And I've seen reports that some of the larger groups that instigated the rebellion in Kazakhstan were under Moscow's control. 
more infiltrated groups. Again, the trust. You know, you get people to believe that you are anti-Moscow. You join their group, but the leaders of the group are Moscow's agents. In in, in the podcast episode, my first solo one analyzing Kazakhstan because I had lived there for three years, which just got featured uh, on the Corbett Report. James Corbett, who I'll be interviewing next week, um, I was pretty nuanced. Where I kind of I, I didn't know what was going on, and one of the um, possibilities that I mentioned was a false flag operation because I, I referenced the 1999 Moscow apartment bombings, which I view as yes. a false flag. Oh, yes. Oh, and yes. So, and, and when I was in Kazakhstan uh, in 20, there was a, um, a terror attack in October, Kazakhstan in 2016. And even many Kazakhs were telling me just every day, Kazakhs. And I, thought, I asked them, what do you think about what happened in 2016? They said, oh, it was possibly a Kazakh government false flag. So again, there's that angle. Yeah, and of course, Alexander Litvinenko um, famously wrote the book. I think the FSB blows up Russia. Um, you know about those flag the the Kobar Towers bombing, which you mentioned, which they blamed on the Chechens. Which there's a lot of evidence that that was organized by the FSB, and um, and the and the later the FSB got caught planting explosives in uh, uh, what is that city on the Volga. Uh, where they, they actually caught them red-handed and the FSB had to admit it. And they said, no, it was only sugar. It wasn't hexagen explosives in the bags in the basement of the apartment. Uh, and then, of course, I mean, uh, Livanenko shows that the first act of Chechen terrorism, which was an attempt to blow up a bridge on the Don River near Rostov-on-the-Don, uh, was done by a KGB agent because he accidentally blew himself up before he made it to the bridge. And they, in his, they found his KGB ID in the remains of his body. <laughs> he was actually wearing his KGB identification when he was carrying the explosives that actually accidentally went off. So uh, everything is not what it appears, both in the Chechen war, in uh, even in Afghanistan and in this Kazakhstan event, uh, because of the double games that the, both the Russian military with their Maskarovka and the, the, uh, the state security, the special services play. So, uh, but looking at the deployment against Ukraine, it does look like they're going to take Ukraine and they're going to take all of it. Uh, nobody knows for sure. Everybody says that, but the deployments, they've gone to a lot of expense to do this. And the timing is, is actually, it's the exact right moment. Actually, if you're going to invade Ukraine, though, actually the middle of February is the best time because that marsh is frozen over. And then you can flank. Otherwise, that marsh is basically impassable by military units and all other times of the year because it's just a giant wetland. And well, there's, well, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, the Pripet Marsh. Yeah. Well, so what, it's like you look be, at this and you go, be. yeah, this is the, this is there. So everything is lined up for it to be perfect. So what would then be kind of like if they did that? I mean, I can just imagine what, how would NATO react? I mean, I, I wouldn't see. I couldn't see them sitting still. I mean, I, I, would there be like then a war begin between Russia and, and, and NATO? Or well, Biden is talking about deploying U.S. forces to Ukraine, and that would, if if there were NATO forces in Ukraine, that would very likely cause it to become a war, and uh, that that would be a that would be a problem. I mean, Biden should not look. We we don't want a war with Russia. And Russia sees Ukraine as its nat national interest. So it would be very stupid, especially when Russia has such a preponderance of force. If NATO went in there, I mean, you have this double envelopment already set around Ukraine. you got Russian forces in Crimea. You've got Russian forces in Transdenistria to the south. You've got Russian forces to the east. Um, you've got Russian forces now assembling in, in Lukashenko's Belarus, Russia in the north. You're going to walk into that. That is an encirclement ready to happen. And you never place your forces into a position of encirclement. So for NATO, any NATO forces that advance into there are walking into a trap, a death trap. So uh, operationally, tactically, it's the wrong thing to do. Uh, it may be morally right to defend the, in, the independence of a, of, a, of a country, but we can't do everything. We don't have an obligation to defend people that we don't have the capacity to defend, that we would only hurt ourselves and kill our own troops and then cause a, a wider war that in the eyes of the Russian people is justified. I mean, basically, except for 7% of the Russians, they believe that what Putin is doing is right. 
And you have to be very careful to feed, not to feed into this idea. We're, you know, the West needs to show the Russian people that we're not against Russia. I mean, we really do. We don't wish any harm to the Russian people. I, I hope, I sincerely hope that Washington has not been scheming against Russia in an aggressive way. I hope that, you know, there's peace, uh, you know, and, and, and that would be handing China a gift because China and Russia, China could then start to develop its offensive plans against its neighbors and against the United States in the Far East if a war develops in Europe. And NATO's not ready for war. The French army is not going to be ready for two, three more years. You've probably read the reports on the French army. They're starting to get their act together, but it's going to take them two, three years. The United States army is not ready, I'm told, to fight a peer-to-peer war because we've been fighting you know, um, guerrilla forces in Afghanistan and, and Iraq. We haven't been fighting peer-to-peer enemy. And our navies, in, we, we're relying on aircraft carriers in the age of hypersonic missiles have made aircraft carriers obsolete. So our Navy needs to be reconfigured, rethought, and we're in this pandemic where we've adopted the wrong approach to it, where we've damaged our own economy and our own currency, and we're divided politically at home. No, you can't have a war under these circumstances. You have to avoid war. You're lining up with what a lot of my previous guests have said as well. I've interviewed Russian military analyst expert Andrei Martyanov, who says exactly what 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 you you have said that at this point in time the West uh, cannot go peer to peer conventionally with 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 Russia and, and the combination of Russia uh, and China. So um, let's say then you know you Russia takes Ukraine. There is mm-hmm. no there is no war imminently, and and that's another thing. What you're saying as well that the West isn't ready. And I've had other experts such as. Uh, the guy on space, Brandon Weichart, I think, who said militaries are getting ready. So they're not ready yet. So they're preparing. You mentioned the French. I, I just read that a few weeks ago. The French have just launched an initiative to ready their forces. And, and yes. they're British as well. Um, and it's like some of my guests have said, we're looking towards between 2025 and closer to 2030 for a, for a war. So let's say Russia takes Ukraine what happens then? You know, is the U.S. just going to continue to disintegrate? What's going to? What's your? Thought? It depends on the leadership of the U.S. and of NATO. Um, they they haven't. They've stuck together, but they. You've got this new SPD government in Germany. The German military is in terrible shape. They they're much worse off than the French, and they're smaller military than the French. The German army is not a significant actor. Um, uh, it, it's just not not possible, and uh, so so there's there's nothing really uh, to be done except for NATO to shore up its defenses. And look, we have to accept the fact that the Union, the old Soviet Union, whatever they're going to call the new Union, and however it's going to work, it's going to come about. It's going to be a political reality. We're going to have to accept that reality, and we're going to have to live with it. And um, and and we. We're going to have to accept the reality that Russia and China are working together, and we must not be provocative. Look, if if we do anything aggressive, they can portray it both in China and in Russia as Western aggression, and we should we need to be just purely defensive, and and purely trying to say, look, we don't want trouble. We don't want trouble. We just want to defend. We want to preserve our institutions and our freedom. Because we and we can't preserve the freedom of everybody in the world, and we've got problems here at home. We've got a problem with the emergence of authoritarian left-wing structures in the West, right? And maybe authoritarian right-wing structures will emerge as well, which Putin is fine with appealing to that because he's played that card too. You know, we talk about playing the China card; they play the right-wing card or the left-wing card, right? And appeal to either one, and they. They do this divide and conquer on us. And um, so under the scenario that you've given, uh, I would agree with you that there is forming this Eurasian Union. The e- I always say the EU is the model, uh, and they're trying to build the Eurasian version. Here, the Mexican president a few months ago said he wants a Latin American Union based on the European Union model. So this seems to be like the new s- s- form 
formation of, of politics and system right. that, that's going to be formed. Uh, you know, could Russia and China also jump the gun and see that we're weak now uh, and attack? Or, I mean, it, do, you, do you feel that it's inevitable uh, uh, war or conflict or that there's a possibility, as you said, if we just kind of focus on home that we might avoid uh, conflict? In a general sense, war is always inevitable. It's just a question of which war, how, how does it occur? If anybody said at any moment in history that there's not going to be any more war, they would be an idiot. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just not human beings are what they are. And conflict and war is part of what we are as human beings. It's built into our societies. It's built into us. Um, but your question of whether Russia and China could say, they're so weak. Let's just take the whole thing. That could happen. That could happen, especially if we give them an opening by making really dumb military moves, by overestimating our ability to contain them and being overly aggressive and leading with our chin to where they could go, oh my gosh, we could, we could just decimate NATO here. It's too good to pass up. And that these NATO countries would all surrender to us or make deals and NATO would be broken up once and for all. Or, or if the United States did something that, that they said, oh my gosh, they're raising their DEFCON level, they're threatening us, we need to go into negotiations, get them to raise the DEFCON level and wipe out their nukes, do a preemptive strike because they're, these uh, crazy reactionaries are ready to strike us. So we, we, we've got the, we're in the position where we can do away with their nuclear arsenal with the preemptive strike. I mean, the U.S. is, you go to the works of Peter Vincent Pry, the one of the premier U.S. nuclear war analysts. If you go by his past statements and works, like the, uh, a volume called Nuclear Wars, Exchanges and Outcomes, we're way past the point where he said that the Russians could win a nuclear exchange. According to his analysis from 1990, he said, if the U.S. has this force structure and they have this force structure, they, they will just automatically win a nuclear war. Well, those force structures are, exist right now. And our nuclear arsenal, by the way, is rotting away. It's past its shelf life. The head of the, the, um, the U.S. strategic forces testified to Congress in February of 2020, almost two years ago. And he said, in three years, our nuclear arsenal will, will, will be totally unreliable, past its shelf life. And we don't have a new nuclear weapon being constructed. Our, we're trying to get our act together to construct new nuclear weapons. It'll be 2029. Now, I don't know if they've moved that 2029 number up. The, I assume there's been some scrambling, but there's a, there's a window of vulnerability opening up. And here we see these military tensions ratcheting up. And so what, is it going to be this year? Is it going to be next year? At what point do they say, oh, the American nuclear weapons are duds. They only make little booms instead of big booms. And we might as well take them now because in a few years, they'll have replaced all those nuclear weapons with good ones. And so this is our only chance. We better not miss it. I mean, they don't, you know, for Americans, we don't understand. Um, in China and Russia, nuclear war is like, yeah, it's possible. You can win one. Uh, a lot of Americans go, oh, that's insane. That's crazy. You can't. No, I've talked to Russian strategists. They, nuclear war is unwinnable, unfightable. What is wrong with you Americans? It's just a it's just a, a grenade with a much bigger blast radius, a nuclear weapon, right? And the radiation is a is a problem that can be coped with. That kind of reminds me because I, I took a stroll in the Polygon. The, I used to live 120 kilometers from the Polygon, the principal Soviet nuclear test site, and I had mm -hmm. the, the experts from the nuclear institute and uh, in Kurchatov take me out uh, that afternoon, uh, that day, and. It was fascinating just going into the polygon. It's 18,000 square kilometers. Um, they, they were not wearing any protection. And so I'm like, okay, they're the experts. They're just, we're just, and I had a Geiger counter and, you know, driving an hour in, I took a measurement and there was no radiation. It was fascinating. And then it wasn't until we got to one of the ground zeros, we had to put on protection and only stay there for five minutes. But their just general attitude was like, ah, don't worry about it. You know, just well, they know they've read the technical literature, and uh, with um, with the long the danger in there because there's no more there's short term radiation and long term. The danger there's the long term long lived isotopes, and they generally live in the blast areas. 
uh, the rest of it goes up into space, goes all the way around the planet and comes down and all those as fallout and all of that, that long-term fallout, a lot of the leukemias and cancers that we've seen in, in the 1960s in the wake of the, the atomic bomb and those atomic bombs were dirty, by the way, compared to the, the, um, the hydrogen bombs were are clean. They put uh, more of this kind of radiation into the atmosphere than a full-blown nuclear war would today. Way more. Because the atomic bombs were dirty. And we had a lot of cancers and leukemias in the 60s because that stuff was falling out of the atmosphere then. And it was getting into people's bones and causing leukemias and causing different forms of cancers. So the cancer rate, and by the way, in Nevada, where we did our testing, if you talk to an insurance guy, if you're a resident of Nevada, you're going to pay higher insurance because there's more cancers in Nevada because of the testing there, right? So, you know, a lot of people don't know this. Of course, uh, what is the actual risk? Uh, uh, it depends on your exposure, you know? Yeah. It's like playing Russian roulette. All right. Well, Jeff, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Um, there were some other topics that I wanted to broach, but we've run out of time and we can save that for the future. Is there any uh, then final thought for you to leave us with um, today? Well, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, there's, there's two, two things going on. There's the moral questions and there's the strategic questions, and they're related. We need to keep them related. And many commentators who say that, you know, Russia's within its rights to take Ukraine, and, and they, they're making actually a moral argument that what Russia's doing is right. Uh, I think we should never concede that. We should be very clear that uh, the regime in Moscow is led by criminals. Putin is a murderer. He's ordered the murder of journalists and dissidents. Um, he is not a normal person. Uh, this is what Colonel Lunev told me is that the leaders, you know, I said, are there any good people in Moscow or the general staff? And he looked at me like I was stupid. He says, these are not human beings. These are crazy persons. And he described them as psychopaths. And the same thing with the leadership in Beijing. Um, we have to understand who these people are and we have to, you can respect them. That's good. You got to respect people who can murder you, who can kill you. Um, but you have to, you cannot try to put lipstick on a pig. They are, they are bad. They're dangerous. They're evil. We need to be honest about it. All right. Well, indeed, whatever the forces are that are acting against us today, currently, they're not nice, whether it's the Great Reset or whether it's um, this um, communist authoritarianism from the East. It, it ain't pretty what's what's coming. And um, I will direct everyone to your website. I think this is the best place to follow you is jrnyquist.blog, right? Yes, absolutely. And they can go to my Amazon page uh, on Amazon and find my more recent book, The Fool and His Enemy. All right, I'm actually going to put in a purchase of some of the books. Are they all available? Or I thought some of them seem to be unavailable. Some of the um, other books. The, the, uh, all those books are available that are on there, except the, uh, my first one, The Origins of the Fourth World War. And uh, if you uh, send me a check for $25, um, uh, I, can, uh, I can do that. But I'm not in the habit of giving out my address right now. But if you can send me through PayPal, uh, J.R. Nyquist at AOL.com, $25. I can send you a copy of the, the Origins of the Fourth World War. Otherwise, they're going to want $90 online because the book is in high demand and it's out of print. But I do have, you know, several hundred copies in my, uh, in my basement. So, Yeah, I had been wondering about that because I hadn't seen it available. All right. So everyone can uh, bookmark uh, J.R nightquest.blog i'll include the link in the description check out jeff's books you can also support him i think 15 dollars uh, a quarter uh, if you like his uh writing it's, it's very diverse there's a lot of different topics uh and hopefully in the future we can talk about some of those and thank you for being uh, on geopolitics and empire for the, for the first time all right thank you for having me i hope you enjoyed this geopolitics and empire podcast interview the website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list through which you can receive an update of every new podcast, as well as a long list of key news headlines once a week. We're being heavily censored. YouTube has deleted some of our videos, and we currently have one strike. Patreon has terminated our account. 
Facebook has restricted our page and Reddit has been the leading posts. Our favorite social media channels are Telegram and Twitter. The best places to watch the podcast beyond YouTube are on Odyssey, BitChute, and Brighteon. The best places to listen to the podcast are on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Google, or on any other podcast app. To help keep this podcast alive, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else. Subscribe to all our platforms and leave a donation if possible via Subscribestar, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum. You can also find us on MeWe, Minds, Gab, Float, VK, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.